please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a seat of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The uh, sermon I found this week uh, defied outlining and organization. I felt like a man who was trying to outline a kaleidoscope or some sort of thing. It's very difficult. And there were so many facets to... um, the considerations that are before us as we look at the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. So, um, this is not good organization, but I think that you'll make a good use if you simply glean from this uh, field and take away from it what you can. The sermon is, with respect to form, exegetical, but with respect to content, largely doctrinal, but it's all sort of mixed in together. And so uh, I'd encourage you to glean doctrine as you can. Primarily, we are in the field of uh, what is called pneumatology or the doctrine of the spirit. Remember where we are. Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we are setting the apocalyptic stage upon which the symbolic history will play itself out. John has had a vision, first and foremost, of God sitting upon the throne, sovereign and powerful, he's majestic, sitting in his kingly glory, but surrounded by an emerald rainbow. In all of his ways, he's remembering mercy. He is attended by all of his people, 
a full complement of attendants and servants, the 24 elders sitting upon the 24 thrones, his priest kings. And uh, this morning we already considered the thunderings, lightnings, and voices that were proceeding from the throne, God's judgments against his enemies. Now we come to a fourth observation, a fourth thing that John saw. The second half of verse 5. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Here we come again to the mystery of the seven spirits. But first notice the way that this is laid out. We don't, we have uh, the Seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, and by way of explanation, John tells us that these are the seven spirits of God. It seems as if John would explain one difficulty with another. It would not be unusual in the hall of a great king for there to be lamps to provide light for the king and for all of uh, those who inhabit his court, whether they be attendants or guests of various kinds. If this is true in the hall of the kings of this earth, how much more so in the hall of the king of kings? It is at this point, and we are developing all of this uh, in, in its exegetical order, it is really at this point that the that the scenery begins to really take its shape and we begin to understand where it is that we stand in the vision. John is looking into the holy place, the significance of the seven-branched candlestick could not be missed. It is the menorah. If you were to enter into the tabernacle, and if you would remember, if you were visiting the tabernacle on a Sabbath day, for example, and it was morning, uh, you would be moving from east to west. The sun would be at your back. When you pass through the, um, the gate, you would see something of an open courtyard surrounded by a fence. And immediately in front of you, you would see the altar, the brazen altar of burnt offering, of sacrifice. <laughs> If you were a normal Israelite, that was as far as you would ever go in the tabernacle. If you were a priest or a Levite, though, you would go a little bit further into the tabernacle towards a tent that's in front of you. Sometimes called the tent of meeting, sometimes simply called the tabernacle. But before you got there, there would be a brazen laver. Basically, it was a very large bowl of brass on stands where there would be the ceremonial washing for the priests. For a few uh, priests, you would be granted uh, admission into that tent, <coughs> the tabernacle of the living God. As you entered that tent, again with the sun at your back, you would see on the right-hand side a table, <coughs> the table of showbread. And on top of that table, there would be 12 loaves, for the twelve tribes of Israel. On your left hand side would be the menorah. The seven branched candlestick providing light uh, in uh, the holy place. 
Remember, there's no windows. And the place was closed. When, once you pass beyond the veil, it's closed. And so this candlestick provided light. And immediately in front of you, you would see two things. You would see a golden altar of incense. And behind that, you would see a beautiful veil of blue, purple, and scarlet. There was only one man, and once in the year that could pass beyond that. And beyond that, there was the ark of God. The ark of God's presence. It is now that we are beginning to understand where we are in John's symbolic vision. He uh, sees the menorah, the seven-branched candlestick. And the priestly courses, the priestly attendants are in this holy place doing service to God. But perhaps the most extraordinary part of this description is that there is no veil. The veil has been taken away and the throne of God is visible, which was represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And we will continue to uh, fill out this vision as we go, but we are now beginning to get a sense of John's position and where we are. And from this position, all of this symbolic history is going to take its course. John here explains to us the significance of these seven lamps of fire. He identifies them as the seven spirits of God. And this is one of the fascinating enigmas and mysteries of this book. Most interpreters assume that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And it raises a question, is this correct? Is this an image of the Holy Spirit? And if so, difficulties remain. Why describe him as the seven spirits? You have one spirit here described as seven spirits. This is odd and requiring explanation. How does all of this fit in the context? And what does it teach us? concerning the person and the work of the Spirit to have him described in this way. I thought we might take up by way of review some of the work we did back in Revelation chapter 1. Start uh, first at verse 4. Turn back there with me, if you will. We had here the first introduction of the seven spirits which are before his throne, which is the very description that we've had here, seven lamps of fire burning, before his throne, which are the seven spirits. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, and so on. Here we have a... Um, a greeting, a greeting in the form of a benediction. John blesses the seven churches, not in his own name, but in the name, as it would appear, of the triune God. Remember, uh, if you can think all the way back to the beginning of our sermon series, this is one of the reasons why in the title John is called St. John the Divine or the Theologian. Here we have a very full representation of the triune God. Very descriptive. 
The Father here is described as him which is, and which was, and which is to come. Highlighting his eternity, and his immutability, but particularly as that's applied to time. The idea that God is present through all of time. And um, uh, this holds with it the promise of his presence and the ultimate fulfillment of all of the things that he has promised to his people. The third member in this benediction is the incarnate son in his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. All of this is evident right on the face of it. It's the second member, the seven spirits which are before his throne, that have occasioned the difficulties for interpreters. And some have suggested that perhaps these seven spirits are created spirits. One of the most interesting attempts at uh, this explanation came from a man named Hugo Grotius. Grotius, uh, you might want to associate him with the time period of the Council of Dort, but not as a friend of Dort. He was, he was internationally re- renowned for his abilities as a biblical critic. Now, that does, didn't mean at that time quite what it means in our day. It meant that he was an expert in lexicography. How do you define the words that we find in the Bible, especially the difficult and rare ones? Grammar. Are we sure that we're interpreting the grammatical structure of uh, the words rightly? Historical context that helps in uh, interpretation. So when you, for example, Paul's uh, and Poole's book is called A Synopsis of Critical Interpreters. And by that, he doesn't mean German higher critics. He means people who were skilled in the rudiments of biblical interpretation, whether that be lexicography, grammar, history, whatever was necessary for the right interpretation of the text. Grotius was a man in this regard, uh, second to none. But when it came to uh, synthesizing exegesis into theology, he was quite poor. Uh, He sided with the Arminians in the conflict, ended up condemned by the estates general and imprisoned so, uh, Grotius is an interesting figure uh, when it comes to matters of interpretation always to be reckoned with. Well, he said that uh, he thought that uh, here we had a representation of the old Jewish tradition that there were seven archangels that were immediately in the presence of God. And he derives this from history. Remember, he's a critic. In the court of the great Persian kings, there were seven chief princes, chief counselors that were always, as it were, before the throne. The Persian court was exceedingly glorious. And so he says here that there arose from this a tradition among the Jews that there was a similar court in heaven with seven archangels, the chief counselors of God, if you will, and that our court scene here arises out of that Jewish tradition. We find some of this in the Bible and some of this in the Apocrypha. If you remember in our sermon series from Ezra, uh, the king is identified as having seven chief counselors, Ezra 7.14. And in the book of Tobit, the Apocryphal book of Tobit, you'll see the connection here, um, Tobit's son has been in contact with 
Raphael. And Raphael identifies himself as one of the seven holy angels which present the prayers of the saints and which uh, go in and out before the glory of the Holy One. It's the book of Tobit 12:15. And so Grotius looked at all of that and said that these are the archangels from Jewish tradition. Uh, there have been other suggestions that perhaps these are the seven angels that uh, blow the trumpets and pour out the bowls. So perhaps there's some correspondence here. The mighty angels that are involved in God's providence. But ultimately, I think all of this fails. And any other construction that thinks of the seven spirits as being created spirits. First of all, the position in the benediction between the two divine persons. We can be sure that the Father is God and the Son is God. To sandwich in the midst of those and right between those seven created spirits seems on the face of it blasphemous. What would grant unto a creature such a position between the uncreated persons of the Trinity? And where did the Spirit go? Also, um, grace and peace are not to be sought from creatures, especially not the same kind of grace and peace that you might be looking for from the Father and the Son. This also appears blasphemous. But I think that there is much evidence to further corroborate the idea that this is the Holy Spirit, in spite of the strange way of representing him as seven First of all, blessing is sought from him. Who is it that is able to communicate grace and peace? From whom do you desire grace and peace? Certainly from the Spirit of God. Also, we have some evidence from what we call the analogy of faith. In a comparison with the fullest benediction that we are given in the New Testament, let me read it to you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Here we have three members, Christ, uh, the Father, and the Holy Ghost. And so by analogy, we would expect that it would be the divine spirit that was occupying one of the positions here. Uh, also, the position in the benediction, it, this would be a harder interpretation if the seven spirits had been me mentioned either first or last, but sandwiched between the two divine persons seems to strongly confirm that this middle member is also a divine person. But we can do even better. Flip forward to Revelation chapter 5. What we find... In Revelation 5, it's that divine attributes are attributed to the seven spirits. Divine attributes. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And, behold, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Here we have the seven spirits again. 
Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world, is presented as having seven horns and seven eyes. And these are portrayed as being the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Here we have uh, no less than three divine attributes that cannot be communicated to a creature. The first is omniscience. The seven eyes of the Lamb. And these seven eyes of the Lamb are portrayed as being not just in a portion of the earth, but where? In all of the earth. These are seven eyes, which speak of a fullness of vision, in all of the earth. These are not the reports of created spirits who could not possibly provide full vision of all of the earth. If we were to look at this didactically, um, hold your place in Revelation, but turn back to Isaiah chapter 11. In uh, Isaiah chapter 11, we are taught about the vision of the Messiah, the vision of the mediator. And... uh, Whence it arises. How is it that the um, that the God-man mediator is uh, possessing impeccable vision and judgment, even with respect to his humanity? Isaiah chapter eleven, verse one. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes. Neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Notice it is said here that uh, the mediator doesn't simply see with created eyes, nor hear with created ears. But his perfection of judgment arises from the omniscient spirit ever communing and communicating with him, which had been given to him and rested upon him without measure, as we will see. So the divine attribute of omniscience is uh, uh, ascribed to the seven spirits, as well as omnipotence. The seven horns are the seven spirits. Something to keep in mind when when you are interpreting Old Testament prophecy The image of horns is a pretty common one, particularly when uh, animals of various kinds, livestock animals appear. Frequently they will appear with horns. And the horns were um, uh, symbolic of their power, their ability to fight and defend themselves and uh, and even to do certain kinds of work. So they became uh, symbolic images of their power and strength. This is uh, the seven spirits are the seven horns of the Lamb, which also are in all of the earth. So here, uh, power in all places, 
a sevenfold power or a perfection of power in all places, which is nothing less than omnipotence. And of course, we know that the power of Christ in the earth is all-powerful, almighty. This is nothing less than the almighty Spirit of God, who is also uh, in the scripture called the Spirit of Christ having been given to him as his reward as mediator. And one other, that the eyes and the horns are present in all of the earth, speaks of the Spirit's omnipresence, that he is present in all places. So we take all of this in summary. This is nothing less than the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And by way of catechetical doctrine, children, this is something that is important for you to know. The Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows your secret thoughts. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent. He has all power. And he is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Already we have set before us a richness of pneumatology richness in the doctrine of the Spirit. But we can say more concerning the significance of this description. Why describe the Spirit in this way? Seven spirits, and likening him to the seven-branched menorah providing light in the holy place. Well, as we have already mentioned, the language of seven speaks of fullness or perfection. Seven eyes and seven horns, perfection of knowledge and power. The perfection of knowledge and power belonging to Christ, which he exercises through his spirit. I want to take you back to Revelation chapter 3, briefly, where we also had a reference to the seven spirits. And you see Christ's, in this this short epistle, the uh, perfection of Christ's knowledge highlighted perfection of his power in some ways implied in all, but the perfection of his knowledge in the foreground. And he thus describes himself unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Uh, Christ is here portrayed as having the seven spirits. You remember... um, if I, if I might uh, enlarge a little bit upon this, you remember that Christ was portrayed as having the seven stars, which are the angels of the churches in one hand. Well, here he's portrayed as also holding or possessing the seven spirits. And this is good news for officers that have become spiritually lifeless, that Christ is able with the one hand to apply the seven spirits to the seven angels in the other hand and thus uh, revive them. So the the seven spirits uh, belong to Christ, and they speak of the perfection of his knowledge and his power, as we see that in Revelation chapter 5, and his ability to exercise his knowledge and power in the churches and for the sake of the churches. And we shouldn't be uh, surprised that in this symbolic vision that the spirit is represented as full and perfect. Sometimes translators do 
to avoid some of the difficulty, we'll render it the sevenfold spirit. The fullness of the spirit. Um, it's because uh, the spirit was given to Christ without measure. The spirit is given to us in measure. We'll talk about this more in, in a few moments. But the spirit was given to Christ without measure. He whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. John 3.34 So seven. Fullness. Perfection. And that fullness and perfection directed toward and exercised in the church. Which is another grand division. You remember that we were told that the seven candlesticks in Revelation chapter 1 were described as the seven churches. And now we have the seven, uh, the seven candlesticks being described as the Spirit. So what's the connection here? The Spirit animates the seven churches, the visible church, and brings light to what would otherwise be lightless and lifeless. It's very interesting that if you have a candle... It's just a candle, and it doesn't shed any light, and it certainly doesn't have the liveliness of flame. It just sits, and so is uh, the church, apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit provides light both for the church, and that light shines abroad out into uh, the world. So we were told in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus interprets it for us. The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And then we're told that the seven lamps burning before the throne are the seven spirits. So which is it? The answer is yes. Here we have a, another symbolic representation of the church. But the church sheds no light and has no light without the spirit. I was uh, talking to my, my own children about this um, this morning. And I asked, well, what, what is the light of the churches? And uh, one of my sons said, well, it's, it's the Bible. And, and I pointed out that, well, a lot of people have the Bible. What is it that makes the Bible light for a particular person? Well, the Spirit. It's the Spirit that takes that word and makes it light for the sin-darkened mind. Um, so without this flame, this candle will bear no light. And we have now had two very powerful consolations because throughout this book, the light of the church will be constantly threatened. It's gospel light. What's going to prevent that light from being extinguished both by her own sinfulness and by the enemies that surround? The high priest in the midst of the candlesticks constantly tending the flame. Uh, eventually, we'll get to that in Exodus where the priests would come in and they would, uh, they would take away the waste products from the burning flame. They'd take those things away. They'd make sure that there was adequate fuel and that the lights were burning brightly. That was their job and their function. And we find Christ in Revelation chapter 1 doing that in the midst of the seven churches. But now we are told that the light of the churches is nothing less then the omnipotent Spirit of God and His light cannot be extinguished. We have now had two strong 
consolations concerning the light of the Spirit. Inasmuch as he is portrayed as flame, it speaks of him being uh, operative and active. And this is very significant when we think of him as being seven, because there's also a sense in which his operation and activity is distributed and spread. This happened, if you will remember, um, in, in Acts when the Holy Spirit descends and is likened unto a flame of fire. But it says that uh, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. So here you have this visible representation of the Spirit, but not a singular, but distributed upon all of those that were gathered there upon that day. And so many interpreters have said, how fitting it is for the Spirit to be uh, represented as sevenfold, because his gifts to the church are manifold and distributed. He gives different gifts to different ones, and he gives them at his own good pleasure according to uh, measure, the measure he wills for each one. And so we're told by Paul, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Ephesians 4, 7. So, the Spirit gives different gifts as He distributes to each one, and He gives each one the measure of that uh, particular gift. So, to have the Spirit, who is the light of the church, the burning light of her testimony, thus represented in the plural, is altogether fitting. But also, um, realize here in this text that it was said that this, the menorah, which is the seven spirits, is before the throne of God, which does seem to represent the use that the Spirit is going to be employed by the Father and Son sitting upon the throne in all of the earth and in the church. So in that sense, the Spirit is portrayed as being before the Father and the Son, before the throne. And we saw this in Revelation chapter 5, didn't we? The reason I bring all this up is some interpreters have looked at it and said, well, if this is the divine spirit, you would expect him to be on the throne in much the same way as the Father and the Lamb are found upon the throne. But when the spirit, the perfection of Christ's knowledge and power is going to be sent abroad into all of the earth, you see how fitting it is that he's before uh, the throne and also uh, illumining the church, the believers there, who are also before the throne. This is uh, another comforting thing because it speaks of the Spirit's omniscience and omnipotence as it is applied to the churches sent out into all of the earth and comforting for us. I hope that this has been instructive, as I said, there, there is a, uh, my problem as a, as a pastor and as a preacher is each one of these aspects of the kaleidoscope could actually become a whole sermon, and yet I, I didn't desire to get uh, so bogged down here that we couldn't advance on through Revelation chapter 4, but I do hope that you will meditate upon what we are taught concerning the Spirit in this remarkable image. And for upcoming sermons, do not forget where we all are.
that the um, uh, Spirit is shedding His light for the church and in the holy place, being the light of the church. Let us pray together.